Well, we have a lot of questions, really? which is great. I, I somehow I doubt we're going to get through them all, but uh, we could just go lightning round the whole time. You get 30 seconds to answer each quick. No, we won't do that. I don't know the mind of God. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Pass. Uh, next. No, so what we're going to do is we're going to pray, because it's always good to pray, and then we'll get into some questions. I may, may make some comments here and there, but I'll probably leave most of it to the expert, um, and we'll see how we go. So let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you that we're able to come and just put our minds to some of the different questions that we have. Lord, we wrestle with many things, and we recognize that whether we have been in the faith for 60 years, whether we are principals or whether we are children, at the end of the day, we are all students to your word. And so we pray that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, and that we would grow in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we actually had a Q&A with Ian already with our youth group, which was a very riveting time. Yeah. <laughs> It was unusual. Uh, nothing like anything he had experienced before was our youth group Q&A. And there was one particular question that Ian was just dumbfounded by. And so I thought I'd bring it back. Uh, and that question was, will there be cannibals in heaven? Uh, you get it all at our youth group. Uh, so what do you think, Ian? Uh, um, am I on? Uh, yes. Past cannibals. Past cannibals. Yeah. But, but don't ask the next one about whether I can eat somebody on a raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean if they're dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we ended up down that weird trail. Is it acceptable to commit okay. cannibalism I'm when trying. you're yep. fighting for survival? Yeah. Yeah. We ended up in some weird places. Yeah. Only in New Zealand. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so. One of the questions that came up a lot is also related to what you're going to be talking about tomorrow. Right. So before I ask the question, why don't you just, can you give us a brief summary of where you're taking all of this tomorrow when we come to church on the Lord's Day? Sure. So, oh, I am. That's, that's the voice of Mount Sinai comes out now. <laughs> um, so I'm going to look at Acts 2 tomorrow. And Acts 2 is kind of the inauguration of the church. So it's sort of, it obviously, it's the giving of the Spirit. It's on the day of Pentecost. And we're going to be looking in the morning at what it means to be filled with the Spirit and how we exercise the means of grace. Bible reading, the Lord's Supper. I'm going to do a little bit with sacraments tomorrow. Uh, Lord's Supper, uh, Bible reading, prayer, and basically how God continues to fill us by His Spirit. I'm going to explain tongues to you, all that sort of stuff in the morning. And then at night, I'm going to look at Peter's speech in Acts, uh, starting from verse 14, and basically looking at that, uh, the promises to you and to your children and to those who are far off and how we need to understand the Bible in terms of households and how God's promise comes to us, not just individually, but to the church and corporately. We're going to look at baptism in all of that. Uh, we're going to look at household things in all of that. So lots of things tomorrow night. Fantastic. So you mentioned the inauguration of the church. Indeed. Um, one of the questions that came in was, when did the church begin? And that's, uh, yeah. Did it begin at Pentecost in Acts 2? Yes. Did it only begin at Pentecost in Acts 2? No. It's a story within a story. And the short answer to that is, I'll deal with that tomorrow night. Oh, great. And we can just say that all day related to most Indeed. of these questions. You'll have to come back tomorrow. So, but the, the other answer for today, which I won't say tomorrow, is nothing's new because everything's part of the covenant of grace. Hmm. But everything's new because everything's been renewed. And so we've got renewal happening all the way through, but it's start part of the whole one covenant. covenant. So connected to that, there was a couple of questions around sort of the differences between a covenantal reading of the scriptures versus maybe dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the questions was sort of what is the difference between those and connected with that, is this a salvation issue in the sense of like, I have to figure this out desperately? Does it drastically matter or not? Is it just a like, she'll be right type thing? That's about 15 questions. Yeah, that's I'll right. Do those. Um, is it a salvation issue? No, because you don't have to pass a theology exam to be accepted by God. Fortunately. Does it matter? Yes, because how I read the Bible does matter. So everything matters. It really depends on your understanding of God. Mm. Is God fickle? Does God change his mind? Does God actually have plans that don't work properly and tries plan B? 
or is God the same yesterday, today and forever? And I would say that God is the same yesterday, today and forever. And God's plan to rescue, if God's plan to rescue in the Old Testament, which is a dispensation, finishes at the end of the Old Testament, it fails. The last word of the Old Testament, at least in my Bible, is curse. And that's where it ends, because they're under the curse. And it's, it didn't work. So it, was that a failed plan? Or was that a plan that continues into the new heavens and new earth, which is where the Bible ends in Revelation 21 and is a, a plan that works? And I want to go that way. So I'm actually reading scripture within the covenant of grace. Now, let me say something different, though. Um, we talked about circumcision. Let me just go there for a second. Okay. Circumcision was a sign that the Messiah would come or food laws. Okay. I'll go to circumcision. If I'm in the Old Testament, I'll go, no, I'll go to an easy one. Okay, easy one. I'll try to find an easy one for you. Day of Atonement. What you do on the Day of Atonement, you kill some, kill some animals, you know, and we have the scapegoat and we send the scapegoat off into the wilderness. Tomorrow morning, let's do it. You ready? I mean, keen, it's, it, it, no, it's in the Bible. We'll get a goat. Has someone got a goat at home? Can you bring a goat here? And someone got a sharp knife at home. Any sharp knives? Yep. Bring please. a sharp knife. We're going to do that. And I'm going to get the blood and I'm going to sprinkle all over you. So don't bring your good clothes. <laughs> and... Basically, so your sins are forgiven. Is that biblical? Yes. Yes. Should we do it tomorrow? No. No. In fact, it would be sacrilegious to do it tomorrow. Mm. So it's the one covenant, but things have happened in the covenant. And why is it sacrilegious to do it tomorrow? Because Jesus has come. And if we did that tomorrow, we would be nullifying the sacrifice of Jesus. It would actually be blasphemy to do that tomorrow. Whereas to do it in the Old Testament is anticipating what's happening with Jesus. So where you fit time-wise on the covenant makes a difference in terms of whether Jesus comes or the Davidic covenant or the Mosaic covenant, because with every fresh bit of revelation, we have more responsibility happening. So it is a progressive revelation happening through, and there is renewal happening within that. Here's a question. I often say this to people when they're getting married. I marry some people, or I officiate at weddings. I've only married one person. Um, <laughs> and here's the problem. This is terrifying. I have grown into my father. And my wife has grown into her mother. It's terrifying. And when people are getting married, I sometimes scare them. Because I say to the bloke and the, and the girl, I want you to picture your father married to your mother. And they just freak. Mm. Try and picture it with your in-laws. And I'm going to say, in 30 years' time, that might be where it is. I'll tell you what, am I married to the same woman I married or am I married to a different woman? And the answer is yes, because mm. we've changed over time. It, it's, it's not going back to how it was. It's developing and changing. And hopefully, you know, when I go home on Monday, I'll, you know, renew again i might even say hello and kiss her and say hello and we walk in the door we will renew our marriage again we do that every day we, it's, it's it's a new covenant that's being renewed all the time it's still the same marriage okay so that's what god's doing it's it's a covenant that's being renewed as we go through by different things that are happening and you can't go back you keep on going forward that's where it's at um and that, is that why earlier you said there's one covenant but different iterations? Absolutely. And so by iterations, you mean? Yeah, it, 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 different iterations. God is doing new things. He comes to one man, Abraham. Then he goes to one nation in Moses with the, um, with the Mosaic covenant. Then he introduces, there's no kings. Then, he, then, then kingship comes in and kingship makes a difference. And then here's a difference. The spirit comes. Oh, well, a big difference before that. Jesus comes, and then after Jesus comes, the Spirit comes. I'm sorry, that is just getting better and better and better all the way through. But it's still the same story. It's still the same story. Yeah, and uh, so those of you who are members here or attend here, you may remember the language I often use when we do baptisms here, and I'll say, we no longer practice circumcision because a bloody sign right. is no longer necessary mm. because it's fulfilled in Christ. But we don't do away with a sign altogether, do we? Mm. But we receive a sign that's fitting for the iteration that we're in. And the same is true of the Passover to the Lord's Supper. Absolutely. Yep. Blood has been shed in Christ. So one question a little bit tied to this is the doctrine of pers perspicuity mm -hmm. and how that relates to, I guess, covenant theology and mm. dispensationalism. 
Yeah, perspicuity is a really hard word that just means clear. <laughs> okay, so the pers perspicuity of Scripture means that anybody can sit down and read Scripture and understand it. Mm. Okay? But, of course, you can read Scripture at different levels. And here's one of the beautiful things that, that I do. I mean, I teach Greek exegesis all the time, and we go into great massive rabbit holes of stuff from the Greek text. But you know what? I can go and teach that same text uh, to a pack of, I don't know, three eight-year-olds, and they'll understand it. So there's levels of understanding and basically scripture is clear and scripture happens within a story. And here's how to understand covenant theology. It's really basic. I've said it a couple of times today, but I'll reiterate it here. You ready? The Bible is about God, not about you. Mm. It's not about you. It's about God. And if you understand that God is the author of scripture, humans are the authors of scripture as well, but so is God then the whole of the scripture is a story about what God is doing. It starts with God and mm. ends with God. When you understand it's about God, well, you may not have the words covenant theology, but you might think, okay, that's how I should read the Bible. Mm. So that's pretty perspicuous to me. Mm. Yeah. Pretty yeah. Good. I, I always appreciate that saying that's attributed to about 18 different uh, theologians, uh, which is that the Bible is deep enough for an elephant mm. to drown in right. and shallow enough for an infant to splash in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like everyone gets something out of it, but you can just continuously delve deeper. That's right. Uh, something a little bit different. How do you connect the imagery of home with the biblical imagery of Christians being sojourners and exiles? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. Because um, we're not home yet. Mm. Okay. It's a time issue. Um, so at the moment... I'm not properly home because there's nowhere where I feel properly at home. I'm, sojourner, I'm a sojourner here as I'm awaiting the renewal of all things. So it, the problem is the issue of sin. And as long as sin is here, we will feel like we're at home, but we're not at home. It's a now, not yet tension. I'm there, but I'm not there. So I kind of, yeah, I belong, but it'll be better. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a interesting tension. I think we all naturally feel it, don't we? Mm. It's that that sense of like, as a human being, I feel like I totally belong and it feels completely natural to be in this world. And I love having a family mm. and I love being with my family and I wish I could be here with my family forever. But at the same time, I fully recognize there is somewhere else I would far rather be. Mm. And I think it comes back to what you spoke about earlier about relationship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Augustine said, uh, we don't have rest until we rest in the Lord, right? Mm. And it's that, well, I think the thing that creates that tension is that we do not have face-to-face -face relationship with God. That's right. But that day is coming when the city of God and his dwelling will be among men right. and we will see him face-to-face -face, and never again will we feel out of place because yeah. we will dwell with him. So Paul does it in 2 Corinthians 5 when he's talking about, I mean, the homecoming comes and the return of Christ who's coming back to stay and new heavens and new earth. But should you die before then, you'll go to heaven and you'll be absent from the body, but at home with the Lord. And, and we're not there yet in our resurrection bodies. That happens at the time of the second coming of Jesus. But relationally, we're at home because we're there with the Lord. And that's okay. So what's it going to be like? I don't know. But who will I be with? Okay, I'll be happy. That's okay. Um, Hebrews 8 yep. talks about old and new covenant. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about yeah. one covenant, different iterations. And I've heard this a lot in d engaging with different, uh, I guess, Baptists and dispensationalists. And one of the common refrains is, ah, but it's a new covenant. Yeah. So how is it new if it's one? And when 8.13 says, and now the old covenant is obsolete. Yep. Of course it's obsolete because Jesus has come. You can't go back. Why is it such a big issue in Galatians chapter 2 when Peter reverts to food laws? Because Jesus has come. What are food laws there for? Okay. My wife's Jewish. I grew up in a... Gen she's Christian as well. Um, you can't be both. Um, <laughs> I'm Gentile and Christian. And my mother-in-law, when we first started dating, called me the Goy Boy. But anyhow, that's another story. Uh, so here comes that Goy Boy again. Um, so... You might need to explain goy. Uh, goy is the sorry. Goy is the Hebrew word for gentile. So and it's, it's yeah. It's a theologian joke. Don't it's mind. a theologian joke. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, 
where was I going with this? <laughs> okay, the reason... Uh, sorry, I grew up in a home where my mother did not like anything from a pig. My mother never ate anything from a pig because she just didn't like it. When I married into a Jewish family, I've never eaten so much pork and pig in my entire life. They, they celebrate the New Covenant like you wouldn't believe. Uh, <laughs> why do you have food laws? You have food laws to keep the people of Israel separate, that Messiah would come from their line. That's why the food laws are there, to keep separate. Do you need to keep separate now? No, the Messiah has come. If you keep food laws now, I mean, you may not like to eat bacon, I'm not sorry for you, but if, if you keep food laws now as a religious observance or circumcision now as a religious observance, you are saying the Messiah has not come, but he has come. So I'll tell you what, because of what has happened in history, what we would call salvation history, those things are now obsolete. That's what Hebrews 8 is talking about. Those things are obsolete because the Messiah has come. And that makes everything change. It's, it's totally different because he's come. So uh, it's still the same covenant, but we can't go back. That was Paul's problem. You see, Paul, Saul, was a devout Pharisee. And that was fine if it was in the Old Testament. But he's not. The Messiah has come. And he recognises the, the risen Lord Jesus. And that stuff is now obsolete. And all the stuff he's doing is obsolete. And in Philippians 3, he actually calls it garbage. In fact, the Greek actually is better translated as dung. It's basically garbage to be got rid of because he's found a righteousness that is now in Christ because the Messiah has come. Therefore, the Old Testament's obsolete uh, because we live in a different age. But same covenant, same covenant. Yeah, I think it's also recognising that new is also new by comparison in the sense of it far outstrips the old mm. in glory. It's a greater period of grace and glory. So if you think about just the way the covenants developed, and we've talked about them a bit today, obviously, but in the, under the Abrahamic covenant, you really had to literally physically descend from Abraham's household to be included. Whereas when you get to Moses, do you remember that when they come out of Egypt, a whole bunch of like, other people follow with them, and they get included, don't they? Whereas all of a sudden you get to Christ, and now it's not just the people that are attaching themselves to Israel. Now it's Jew and Gentile included. And so it's this: it, the, the new covenant is so far more glorious now that Christ has established it, that in comparison to what went before, you would call it new. So it is this comparison reality too. There's two, there's two Greek words for new. Let me teach you some Greek. I've taught enough Hebrew today. Um, there's the word kainos, which is the new covenant, and the word neos. They both mean new. But they have a different slight meaning. Let me illustrate for you. I've used this illustration before. Made up story, very quickly. There's a woman, her husband's a, a, he's a gambler. He's a shocking gambler. And she says to him, either you give up gambling or the marriage is over. And so do you know what happens? He keeps on gambling. And so do you know what she does? She divorces him, and she marries another husband. Story two. There's a woman. Her husband is a gambler. And she says to him, either give up gambling or the marriage is over. And so he goes to Gamblers Anonymous. He gets help. He no longer gambles again. He's a whole new man. And these two women meet in the supermarket one day, and woman one says, I've got a, whole, I've got a new husband. And woman two says, yeah, I do too. I have a new husband. Now, can you hear the difference in the stories? Now, there's two Greek words. The first word for the, for the woman one is neos, which is a replacement husband. The word kainos in the New Testament means new in terms of a renewed husband. And so when we talk about the New, new Testament, the new heavens, the new earth, it's all this kainos word. It is the renewal rather than the replacement. So and that's kind of a helpful way to understand the new covenant. These guys, they need to read the Greek. Uh, I'll be teaching Greek next year at GTC if you want to come and join. Indeed, go for it. <laughs> Slight pug. Jeff, uh, yep. yep. See Jeff after this. Uh, slightly connected to this, a new sort of covenant language in Hebrews 10 verse 14, it speaks about Jesus being uh, the mediator of a better covenant. And so this question is, we baptize children in the new covenant, so there are people in the new covenant who are not saved. Absolutely. In general, if there are people in the new covenant who aren't saved, how can Jesus be their better mediator? Because he is the better mediator and they are blessed in the new covenant. You see, 
this is a covenant community. This is Covenant Presbyterian Church. Is everybody here at Covenant Presbyterian Church a Christian? Uh, no, in case you I, I don't know. I know those who profess, but I reckon there's wheat and weeds growing up together here. And here's the biggest problem I made in my first parish. I thought I could do election detection, but I can't. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that person looks like a Christian. That per I, can't, I can't see your heart, even if I've known you forever. But I can recognise whether you profess Christ. And if you do profess Christ in some way or belong to a professing family, you're part of the covenant community. You may not be a Christian. 1 Corinthians 7 says that even the children of uh, one parent who's a Christian are holy. It doesn't say, they're, doesn't say they're Christians, but it's a great blessing to grow up in a Christian family. There are so many blessings of being belonging to the church. Salvation may not be one of them, but you are, you are part of a better covenant. This is the covenant community. Judas Iscariot was a member of the covenant. So just because there's covenant, that's who, I can tell who's outside the covenant. They're the people who deny Christ. They're all over Auckland. They say, I'm not a Christian, I'm an atheist. Okay, not part of the covenant, clear. But I profess Christ. I can't tell. So this is where the scripture talks. We are to treat people who profess Christ as though they are Christians and to put Christian obligation on them. Uh, Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Is that right? Is that right? What do you do to unfruitful branches? Chop them off and burn them. Is that what you do to people who are Christians? Who are they? They are connected somehow into the covenant. You can have assurance for your own salvation to know if you're in a right relationship with God. But in the church, I just can't tell. I've got to work in covenant categories. We're going to talk more about that tomorrow night. Yeah, I think one of the huge difficulties that we have, even in just beginning to think about this stuff, is that we are born and bred and trained with an individualistic mindset. And, and so when we get to the Bible, which is completely not individualistic, there's a we feel a massive disconnect because we think about all of the the scriptures, the promises, the words, and we think about them as individuals. We think, well, okay, how does this apply to me as an individual? But God, as we've heard expressed today, is thoroughly covenantal. It's the way he acts. That's the way everything functions. Households, which we're going to hear about tomorrow, family units, covenants, and covenants not just with people, but with peoples. And I think that's retraining our brains to think and feel the way God thinks and speaks in the scriptures. Um, how many do you expect will be here tomorrow morning? How many do you expect will be here tomorrow morning? A couple of hundred? No, I don't think so. Three hundred. No. <laughs> no. Did you hear my question? I didn't ask you how many people. I just said how many. Now, why did you go straight to individuals? How many households do you think will be here tomorrow morning? 50. See, we think in individual categories. We just jump there. The Bible speaks much more household-wise. Um, there were a lot of questions about infant baptism, as you might imagine. Good. Um, and most of them effectively come down to covenant and why do we baptize children? How does this connect? Um, why, do you want to enter into that now, or do you just want to say, find out tomorrow? Find out tomorrow, but <laughs> even if you don't, I mean, I'm thoroughly committed to covenant baptism. I won't break fellowship with you over it if you're not. <laughs> but please don't tell me it's not biblical. And please don't tell me that infant dedication is biblical because that is something that is absolutely not biblical. You can't find that in the Bible, certainly not in the New Testament. So have a little bit of grace towards it. There are very clear arguments. And I think ultimately, I am not a pedo-baptist. I'm not a credo-baptist. I'm an ecclesiobaptist. And that means baptism is given to the church to members of the church. Mm. And so really the question is, who are members of the covenant community? Mm. 
And when you're raising your children, are you raising them as little pagans, hoping they'll become Christians? Or are you raising them as Christians, putting Christian obligation on them? Why do we go to church, my kids said, heaps of times when they're growing up? And here was the answer, because you belong to this family and that's what this family does. That's a household answer. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Mm. Yeah. More tomorrow night, okay? Mm. I'll be, yeah, we'll get there tomorrow night. I think, again, it's connected to thinking covenantally in household, which you'll be doing, helping us more on tomorrow. Um, there's a couple of topics we're not allowed to talk about, which is why I'm happy to do it. We're always, we're a little bit worried about upsetting people if we talk about infant baptism because we know there's people who won't agree and so we don't go there. And so there's generations of people who've never heard teaching on it. Mm. Okay, and that's really true. So tomorrow night I'm going to teach on it and then Monday I'm going to leave the country. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I will just plug a book. So... I read a fantastic, I will just follow. I read a fantastic book on preaching. That's not the book I'm going to plug. By a guy called Pierre Marcel. He's a Frenchman. And I was like, this is great. And then I thought, I wonder if I have any other books on my bookshelf by Pierre Marcel. And, I, and he wrote a book on infant baptism. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. You need I'll to read, read it. it. I will. The best book I've ever read on the subject. Wow. He, he writes a book. It's about this thick. And, and he has one chapter on why you baptize children. Okay. One, it's a huge, thick book, one chapter. Okay. He spends the entirety of the book talking about covenant, yep. unpacking the theological foundation for it. He unpacks sacraments, how they connect Old Testament, New Testament. And when you get to the final chapter, you think to yourself, I don't need to read the last chapter yeah. Yeah. because it just makes sense. And, and that's why this, I think this is one of the reasons people really struggle with this question, because it's not just as simple as, well, Jesus got baptized in the river, and so I do the same. You know, it's, you actually have to have a, a theological framework of the entirety of the Bible in order to think this stuff through well. And you may think that that sounds really hard, but you have a theological framework for how you read the Bible. Mm. You do already. And we all read literature whether it's the six o'clock news or whether it's a comic or whether it's whatever, we all read it through a lens of how we see it holistically. And basically, you all look very blurry at the moment. <laughs> I have no idea what you're doing. You can do whatever you want at the moment. But the, the beautiful thing about covenant theology is I have a lens through which, ah, if only you could see it from my perspective, everything becomes clear. Mm. You do have a lens already. The question is whether you've got the right prescription or not. Mm -hmm. uh, so com sidestep side completely. Mm -hmm. Why did God wait until the 16th century before bringing about the Reformation? Yeah, that's that first answer. You have to ask him. Um, <laughs> he does, I mean, the Reformation happens with Jan Hus. Mm. It happens with Tyndale. It happens with lots of people on the way through. The thing is, it just doesn't take off so quickly at that point. God has been, there has never been a time when there has not been at least a remnant of correct theology all the way through. But the Reformation was a, a massive thing. I mean, was the Reformation good or bad? I mean, it's, sometimes it's good to be persecuted because you remain pure and once everybody became Christian in Switzerland it just led to the you know it led to a couple of generations and we all became nominals so you know why is God doing what God is doing um, yeah good question why the 16th century there's lots of reasons that we can give but we know that why that was a good time we know that Jesus came in the fullness of time we know God's providence is is looking for the right times we know that God is in control Here's the answer, because he thought it was the best time. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the, for his glory. Yeah, good. I mean, obviously we don't know. We, mm -hmm. you, we can't, I mean, it's the mind of God. No one knows the mind of God except for the Spirit of God, the Scriptures tell us. Um, but there are factors we can point to and say, well, this is one of the reasons it happened then. Oh, absolutely. Such as the printing, printing press. Printing press. Huge. As soon as the printing press took place, everything changed. Yep. The ability to produce material Indeed. and spread it everywhere changed. Yep. Um, one of the things I've often wondered about, we read earlier um, 
when God spoke to Abraham, he said, or Abram, he said, uh, the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached their fullest. Yep. And I, I wonder if there's a sense in which the Catholic Church, as, as it corrupted itself, was it, it needed to go to a certain level before God drastically brought change. Mm. You know, we see that in our countries, don't we? So you see this downward trend of corruption that takes place. And all the way through history, you get this downward trend, and then God does something and brings the light, and he brings change. And we pray that that would be today. Um, yes. How do you answer the free will slash human responsibility question? Uh, brackets. God is completely sovereign, but we are still responsible for our sin. You go down to the cemetery and you try to call dead people to life and see how much joy you have. You're not going to do it. If you really believe you are dead in your sin, if you really believe that, you will not come to life without a reawakening and vivification from God. It's as simple as that. That's why clever arguments are great, but they won't convince people to become Christians. Um, it's really, it's God's work. And that's why you never give up on anybody. You pray for them. Because if God comes after someone, I'll tell you what, they become Christians. Okay? And if I didn't believe in election, I don't know what I'd do but I wouldn't be doing the job I'm doing because I don't think I've got the persuasion or the power to convince anyone to do anything. Um, it's just God's word doesn't come back to him void. So I trust him to do his work. It's as simple as that. Without divine sovereignty, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, I think one of my favorite biblical examples of this is Lazarus. You know, so you've got a picture of Lazarus in the tomb, right? He stinks by now, his sister says. And, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, did Abraham, did Abraham, did Lazarus think to himself, I wonder if I'm going to decide to come to life? Mm. He didn't, did he? The second Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, he's alive. Does Lazarus have human responsibility at this point? He has to walk out of the tomb, right? So what does Lazarus do? He stands up, he hears the voice of Jesus, and he comes. Could he have made that decision without Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth? He's dead. That's the, that's the perfect illustration in my mind of how this plays together. Are we required to heed the call of Christ to repent and believe? Yes. Yes. Are you responsible? If I say to you, if you're an unbeliever and I say to you, Jesus offers you eternal life, you are responsible to heed that call. But we recognize that the individual is as dead as Lazarus, and unless God gives him a new heart, he cannot do that. Um, yeah. yeah. Have you ever heard a Christian testimony? I'm sure you have. You've heard testimonies, haven't you? People that have become Christians? You know, I was a drug addict, and I was this, and I was that, and you know, these testimonies, and this happened, this happened. I have one exception. I've only had one exception. Every testimony—I won't tell you about the one exception. Every testimony, uh, ask me afterwards. Uh, every testimony I've heard says this happened. Then six months later, this happened. Then three months later, this happened. Then this happened. Then I met this person. Then I went to this camp. Then I heard his speaker, and then I became a Christian. And I get all come away from those testimonies, thinking, "Oh wow, that's a great lot of coincidences, isn't it?" <laughs> they all go like that. Do you reckon someone's orchestrating that? What's well, divine sovereignty? I, it's just, it's just that they're the testimonies I hear. Mm, mm. Did God intend to save only Noah and his family from the flood? No. Yes. He saved the elephants as well. <laughs> the flood is presented as a recreation story. It's the renewal of creation. It is a story. There are only two times in the Bible when the world is destroyed. It's in the flood and it's in Peter, where we talk about the world being destroyed by fire. And it's going to be destroyed that it might be purged, that it might be renewed. 
The and so, yes, there is the issue of sin, and Noah and his family were the only people uh, who were um, saved. But it wasn't just them; it was also their offspring as well, of which we are some. So, um, yeah, I don't know. That's an answer. Yeah, just um, complete side note on Noah. Depends what you mean. Uh, okay. Yeah, um, complete different side note. How many people were have the favor of the Lord upon them and are called righteous at the time of Noah? One, right? How many people went in the ark? Yeah, Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives. Interesting, isn't it? God, it make, is. God makes a covenant with one man and yet saves who? Mm. His family. It's covenantal theology, isn't it? It's just everywhere. When you start seeing this stuff and you start reading the scriptures, you just start seeing it everywhere. God heaping out his mercy and grace upon undeserving people through his covenants. So one righteous guy and all of the families receive the blessings and the benefits of that covenant that he establishes with him. What is the covenant? You mentioned this earlier. Uh, you mentioned, actually, you didn't mention this in particular, but you mentioned two covenants. Covenant yep. of works yep. or life yep. uh, and covenant of grace. Yep. So what is the covenant of redemption and is it biblical? Okay. How much detail do you want? People use the covenant of redemption two ways. Theologians love to talk about an intra-Trinitarian covenant whereby the Trinity members are actually going into a covenant of redemption that is prior to um, everything, okay? Whether you're an infra or a supralapsarian and all those other big words that are bigger than goy. Um, so that's normally what's the covenant of redemption, okay? Is it biblical? We've got a, a student in our college who's doing a, PhD at the moment who's arguing it is, that's a good question. We'll have a discussion about it later on. Can you read it from the pages of Scripture in a perspicuous, in a clear way? Um, <laughs> probably not, but it could be a construction there. Other people use the term in another way where a lot of people actually talk about the covenant of grace as the covenant of redemption. And if that's the case, absolutely. And I'm happy to call, I mean, I know the Westminster Confession and all those sort of documents talk about the covenant of grace, but some documents talk about the covenant of redemption, and I have no issue. Redemption's all about grace, and grace is all about redemption. So if you mean the covenant of grace by the covenant of redemption, yes, yeah, sure, thoroughly biblical. If you're talking about some intra-Trinitarian sort of thing, uh, the doctrine of Scripture that I hold on to is the sufficiency of Scripture, and that is the Bible is sufficient for all that I know for salvation for the Christian life. And if it's not in the Bible, I don't need to know it. So it's kind of there implied, and it's great for theologians, it's great for PhDs, it's great for writing books. It is good to think about, um, but don't get too hung up, hung up on that. Uh, is, is the Trinity biblical? That's a question for you guys. Yeah, please say yes. Please don't say no. This is a yes question. There's but Trinity it, Presbyterian Church over that way. Yeah, that's right. Well, there's another Trinity Presbyterian Church. So, um, but that's not mentioned in the Bible, right? So... You always have to remember there are things that aren't mentioned in the Bible. That doesn't mean they're not biblical. We have categories to describe things. And so a covenant of redemption, I think, is just a helpful term to describe what happened before everything happened as we think about the plan of God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. Hmm. And, and so it's that plan and covenant of redemption is just, oh no, at some point someone was like, hey, we'll call it the covenant of redemption. That'll be a cool name. And it's stuck, you know. Cool. So another question for us before we've got 15 minutes left. Well, not really a little bit less than that, but uh, where would you personally, this is a light, more lighthearted question, where would you personally rate uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul or Sprawl in the long list of reformed theologians of the last 200 years? No, no pressure. Do I have to give him a number? Yeah. <laughs> out of how many there are in the last 200 years? Can I give him a mark out of 10? Yeah, sure. Okay. God alone is perfect, so nobody gets a 10. I'm a hard marker. It's actually easy to get over the line with me. 
I'll give you 51% for something that's pretty average. <laughs> you're listening, Chris, you're doing my subject. <laughs> but, and I've heard students argue over my marking because I get really nasty towards the top. You've got to be sensational to get towards the top. Eight and a half. That's pretty good. That's a pretty, that's a high distinction. Yeah. So maybe nine. Ask me where I rank myself, six, four. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, who, wh who would you put above him? I can't include Jesus. No. You, you can include from the Reformation since it's a Reformation conference. I wouldn't put Luther above him. <laughs> no. <laughs> I would give Joel Alston a 10 if I can give negative marks. Um, <laughs> I'd put Calvin up there. I mean, I think it's not because I'm a Presbyterian. If you want to, there, I always get these confused. There's the battles and the beverage translation. The battles are the ones that's easy to understand. Battles. Mm. I have sand in my battles Calvin's institutes that's like this thick. And as you can see, I have good Celtic skin and I got sunburned because I was reading Calvin's institutes on the beach and I couldn't put it down. It is stunningly simple if you get the right translation. Um, and it is, it is an enriching document that is both pastoral and informing. And for its time, the person who had the greatest impact for the longevity of the Reformation, I mean, Luther did a great job, got a lot of things wrong, but he did a great job by kicking it all off, and that was great. And Calvin refined it some more so. I'd push them up, give me some, I might put John Owen up there, I might want to put, I've got too many. Yeah. Um, but if you want one who's going to be the most significant ones are the ones you'd know, yeah, good old John Calvin would be up there. Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd, yeah, I'd agree, John Calvin. Someone said to me, um, and I'm not sure if it's true or not because I haven't read all of the works of Calvin throughout his entire life, but someone said that there, Calvin is the only theologian to write from beginning to end and not change his theological perspective. Yeah. There are two Luthers. There's young Luther and old Luther. Yeah. You, you think about that, right? He, he wrote his in, first institutes in his 20s. I know. And, and he died in his 50s. I know. And he did not change his theological perspective. Now, that might not seem significant to you, uh, but I can guarantee you Ian's changed some of his perspective since he first started. Absolutely. As have I, and I'm, I'm still young. And I go to libraries and libraries of books. He went to his Bible. Yeah. In so, Greek and Hebrew. Yeah, Cal yeah I would, Calvin's top. Uh, I think he's the greatest theologian of history, with the exception of someone that's divine. Um, if our child never openly denies or accepts the faith as his own, is there another indicator as to whether or not they still have the blessing? They still have the blessing. Does that happen? I'm not 100% sure. Let me be provocative for a second. When our children were growing up, I prayed that they wouldn't be converted. Yep, I'm being provocative. I said at the beginning, when our children grow up, I pray that they wouldn't be converted. Don't worry, I'll fix it up. <laughs> because they were growing up in a Christian household and I didn't want them to convert away from Christianity. Conversion means to change. So there is a level that when a child is growing at an appropriate stage, they are owning Christ at, at the age of a four-year-old and an eight-year-old and a 16-year-old. And in fact, if you can't believe in Jesus like a four-year-old, then you can't get into the kingdom of heaven either. That's them. But that's not, I said I'm being provocative because it's not quite right because they did need to be converted because they needed a new heart. They need to be regenerated. They need to come to faith. So they do need regeneration. But I didn't want them to turn to something else. Now, some people do get converted from Christian households. They're called the prodigals, and they go off and they go somewhere else, and then they come back. I didn't want them to have to go through that either. Um, so there is a level at which um, I can't do election detection for a four-year-old, but I know that a four-year-old can believe in Jesus, can believe that Jesus forgives them for the things they do wrong and can trust in Jesus. And in fact, if I can't do that like a four-year-old, I've got problems. Because Jesus says I've got to be like them. So I can't do election detection. 
I think one of the difficulties we have in questions like this is we often confuse regeneration and conversion. That's right. So to help, to help you think about this, must everybody have a conversion experience to be saved? Hmm. No. There's lots of people that you speak to and they say to you, I've just always believed in Jesus. I can't remember not loving him. Must everyone be born again to be saved? Yes. It doesn't matter if you're born into a Hindu family or into a Christian family. No one enters the kingdom of God, Jesus says, without being born again. When we confuse those two is when we often find ourselves in problems. And then you start hearing people saying things like, oh, I'm, I just desperately need my child to be converted. So, well, maybe your child doesn't need to be converted because they're already born again. I mean, John the Baptist was born again before he was born. Did you know that? Why? How do we know that? Because when Jesus in the womb comes to Elizabeth, she says, the child within me is leaping for joy because my, the mother of my Lord is here. <laughs> so we, we don't know when a person is born again. And, and sometimes we see people have conversions and sometimes we don't. Uh, related to this, maybe a little bit more challenging, but if a child is baptized and leaves the faith as an adult, was the baptism a false baptism? No, it's a real baptism. If, a, if an adult at age 43 is immersed in more water than you can find anywhere and then leaves the faith, is that a real baptism? Yes. Baptism is not about your response. Baptism is about the pledge of God to you. And so when that child comes back to faith, if that child does, that's because of God's pledge to that child. And if the child doesn't come back, well, or the adult doesn't come back. I, I've, I've met plenty of people who've walked away from the faith, whether they were adult baptised or infant baptised. There's no guarantee in adult baptism um, that that is the case. If you think it's all about you, then that's the problem. The Bible's about God. It's about God's covenant, God's faithfulness. So, yep. And, yeah, the other thing to remember is that if a person walks away post-baptism, either as a child or an adult, Baptism actually fulfills its intended purpose in that individual because the sign now becomes a sign of judgment. Yep. So if a circumcised individual was faithless to the covenant, what happened? They were cut off, stoned to death, excommunicated. And the same is true in the new covenant, they are cut off. Yeah, okay, we don't stone people anymore, but they are cut off and they remain under the judgment of God. And the sign that was intended for blessing is now a sign of cursing. And it becomes a sign against them because they received the promise. They received the blessing. They received all of the gracious pictures of God to them, but they rejected it. And that's true for the adult or the child, right? Regardless of when they received it, same thing applies. And it's true of the Lord's Supper too. That's why you have the warnings at the Lord's Supper. If you take the Lord's Supper unworthily, you're actually taking judgment to yourself because that's what the cross is. The cross is judgment. And so, um, yeah, but still the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Well, we, we are now 8-2, and we're going to wrap it up in a second here. Um, there's a few things we need to do. Firstly, obviously, we need to say thank you to Ian. And before I, before we, wait, 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 don't, don't start clapping yet. When, not as bad as Americans, but we do like clapping. Close um, to Americans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do just want to express uh, immense gratitude to you, brother. Thank you. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you. Uh, we're looking forward to more tomorrow, obviously. So, but we'll do the thanks now because it'd be weird doing the thanks and yep. tomorrow during church. Um, but I'll come back. And if anyone wants to get more of Ian, you can sign up to papers at Christ College. You can even take them through Grace College in a weird roundabout way. You can. Uh, if you ask Chris Burton, put your hand up, Chris. Yeah, you can ask Chris about it, and he'll tell you the experience. Or you can see Jeff McPherson. He can help you get there as well. But it has been a joy to be able to have you come and open up the God's Word. It's been deeply impactful. A lot of Thank people you. have said to me it's been very helpful. Um, and so we're very grateful. So how about we express our thanks to him?
Now, some conferences, there was a conference last weekend and they gave their speaker an All Blacks t-shirt, which is pretty amazing. It would be insulting to you. It would. He was American, so it's, it's cool when you're an American. We have something way better, um, which is something infinitely cooler, which is actually a Covenant t-shirt. Oh, really? Oh, awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, I will wear it with pride. So, Thank you. So last weekend we went, or some of the youth and some of the young adults went to a sports camp, and that was the T-shirt made for the youth team, the Covenant Great. youth team. So now every time you see that, you can remember the Covenant of God. I will. And our church. I will. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. And just look, a lot of people have done heaps of different stuff, but thank you all of you for coming. Last year, I think we had about 35 of us. So that's a pretty great improvement, isn't it? It is. Next year, we will be doing it again. I am, Lord willing, hoping for us to get a guy from America who does Reformed Spirituality in Westminster Seminary, which looks extremely interesting. If you sound, if you think, what on earth is that? You'll have to wait till next year to find out. But it looks great. But otherwise, what we're going to do is I'm going to pray for us. Actually, Ian, I'm going to ask you to pray for us in a second. And then we're going to stand up and sing a hymn that was written to celebrate Reformation uh, weekend. It's called the Reformation Song. And it's even got a special verse written just for Reformation weekend, which is cool. So we'll sing that and then we'll be done for the day. Would you like to pray for us, brother? I would love to pray for you and, and thank you at the same time. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that when we read the promises of the Old Testament, that they all find their yes in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that the answer of the New Testament to the Old Testament is not no, it is yes. And we thank you, Father, that as we are grafted into Christ, so those promises read through the lens of what you have done in the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus are applied to us as well. Thank you for your faithfulness that is not just over a few weeks or a few years, but over millennia. Thank you that you are the God who is committed to your creation, committed to your church. And we do thank you this weekend for the wonderful times in history when there have been wonderful movements of your spirit. We think of the time of the Reformation. We think of the time of revivals. We think of the time of the evangelical awakening. We thank you, Father, for these times. And we do pray, Father, that you would be pleased to pour out your spirit afresh on this land. We pray that many people would come to know the Lord Jesus and live under his sovereignty and know the joys of the covenant that are available to them in Christ. Would you, Father, please bless this land. Thank you for this church. Thank you for its covenant perspective. Thank you, Father, for its ministry of grace. Bless all who work here, Father, we pray for all who minister here. And we pray, Father, whether to Manurewa or to Auckland or beyond, this would be a means of your blessing and your grace to many people. Thank you, Father, for each other. Give us travelling mercies as we travel home. And we pray that tomorrow as we gather with your people on the Lord's Day, that we would rejoice to be your people, purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus, forgiven by him and able to call you our Father. And so, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.